Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us, we're in this series called The Invitation of Jesus. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. And in case you missed last week, you've got to go back. For me, it was uh, honestly so encouraging and convicting because the main point of that sermon was the fact that if we don't make the source for our life prayer, we'll make it ourselves. And thinking about the truth that God wants to speak to us, you've got to go back and check that sermon out. But today, the title of the sermon, if you're a note taker, is The Mountain of Faith. The Mountain of Faith. We're going to look at the transfiguration of Jesus and then right after his encounter with a demon-possessed boy. And our vision for this time is the belief that the mountain is actually the invitation of Jesus to faith, to understand faith, to walk by faith. Because here's what I know about this room. When you look at that phrase, the mountain of faith, I know some of you in this room, you immediately went to that mountaintop high experience that you've had. I'm talking about that moment at church camp. I'm talking about the moment where all of a sudden Jesus became real to you maybe for the first time. I'm talking about maybe you stood on this stage and got baptized and shared your story. I'm talking about the time you were on a mission trip where all of a sudden faith was in action and you were like, whoa, God is real. And at the same time, maybe the moment where the pages of scripture, you're like, I see God in almost every single word. There's these moments in our life that I would call the spiritual mountaintop high moments. But then I also know some of you, when you saw the mountain of faith, you immediately thought about the insurmountable object in your way. You thought about the problem. You thought about the issue. You thought about the question that you have. That standing in your way from living the life that Jesus died and rose for you to live is this massive, massive mountain. So I don't know what that is for you, but what's interesting to me is that we are caught in the consistent limbo of life, of wishing we were back on the mountain, with Jesus, and stuck believing maybe he's not with us in the valley. And we go back and forth as a believer in Jesus, wondering, what does this mean? And I just want to tell you, before we open up the word of God, today, the reason why we're looking at this passage of scripture is because the transfiguration is known as the climactic moment of Jesus's ministry. What I mean by that is a transition that's happening. So up until this point, Jesus has been doing public ministry to the world. But now, when he comes down from that mountain, it begins his private training of the disciples. And so there's a lesson in here that he wants to teach us as disciples of Jesus. So we're going to look into it together. If you have your Bible, hold it up. you have your Bible, hold it up. You know, I was debating what to do for this time, and I thought this would be telling to all the people in the room. Um, If you, let's just go here. If you were born after September 11, 2001, keep your Bible in the air. Anybody feel old? (laughs) Y'all need to know this, that I think juniors in college, some juniors in college were born after September 11, 2001. Now that we all feel bad about ourselves, everybody turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 28. We're going to study the transfiguration of Jesus. We're going to kind of fly through this story because I think a lot of people know the spiritual high that I'm talking about, but demon possessions right after. So we're going to dive deeply into that. Transfiguration of Jesus, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. If you're there, say, I'm there. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, 
the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. We're going to stop there. We're going to pick back up in just a moment. This is what I would call heaven meeting earth. This is where faith becomes sight. This is a moment for these three guys. Or it says in verse 32, they saw his glory. Think about this. They're thinking, finally, the conquering king is here. This is the Messiah. And then what happens? They hear God's voice speak. This is my son. There's identity spoken over Jesus, but then it leads to a directive for all of us. Listen to him. This epic moment's happening. But what does Peter say? He says, let's put up three shelters. Which, by the way, I love how Luke writes this because you see that phrase in the parentheses? Like, Luke is cringing, I think, as he's writing this. Like, he didn't know what he was saying. Like, this is like literally a moment where I think he has secondhand embarrassment for Peter. But it's also what all of us do all of the time. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, your spiritual life is great. Like, I get it. When your spiritual life is great, it's like everything in your life is too good for it all to be chance. And like, God is speaking to you through the pages of scripture and like everything you're praying, you feel like he's hearing and like everything you do, even the things that used to drive you crazy don't bother you anymore. Like let's just say you have maybe like a toddler who's like almost two and he's like eating and he's like throwing a tantrum, right? And he like throws his fork like across the room. Not that this has happened to me at all, but he throws his fork like across the room. And what do I do? Because I'm living the good life with, with God. I, I float over on angel wings, right? Like I'm feeling great. But all of you know that that is not your default mode. Can we just be honest? My default mode is I wake up more burdened than rested. I wake up worrying about things more than praying about things. I wake up more frustrated at life than excited about life. And if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you can be sitting across from the table from your spouse, and you can look at them, and you can say, could you just breathe differently, please? You're driving me crazy because we get this spiritual energy right zapped from us. That's where most of us, our default mode is. And what happens? In actuality, I think we rationalize a lot of what we're experiencing because we think, oh, we're, we're morally good and I know I'm going to heaven. So we settle for this life that is just okay. But what that is, is it's a slow coast and a slow drift into what I would call cultural Christianity and comfort. But Jesus has something better for us that he wants to see and us to see in the scriptures. And it's so good because the plan is not to stay here. Because what does it say in verse 37? The next day they came down. 
So before we move on, this is an important lesson for us to get. God pours into you so that you go out. In other words, when you activate on the inspiration of God, it's actually what can authenticate your faith. Let me just use James' words instead of mine. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So maybe for some of you, the lesson today is this. Maybe you're so spiritually apathetic because you have not obeyed the last thing that God revealed to you on the mountain. And it's time for you to step into it. Activate your faith. It's where life comes alive. Because here's what most believers in the room will tell you. Is a lot of people would think, yeah, my spiritual high moment was one of those things I described earlier. But what a believer will tell you is, yeah, the spiritual high moment was actually the moment where I said goodbye to my mom in the hospital. But I knew that God was with me. Or the moment where I knew that I finally got caught from that sin and I had to go to rehab, but I knew God was with me. Or the moment you got another pregnancy test that says not pregnant, or you find out, again, you had another miscarriage, but you know that God is with you. It could be another moment where all of a sudden everything in your life seems to be falling apart except for one truth, one reality, that God is with you. And this is what it means to live in this tension. A lot of us want to get back to that mountaintop. We don't realize that God is with us in the valley. And that's actually where all of a sudden your faith begins to make sense. And this is what he's teaching the disciples. Let's go to verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams. It throws him in a convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit. He healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So again, you go from the spiritual, high, epic moment. Jesus, fully glorified. Jesus in his actual form of divinity. Whoa, the transfiguration. And now you have the harshest reality that you could probably think of spiritually. Full-on demonic possession. And so there's a painting that I, I love. I'm going to put on the screen. It's called the transfiguration. And I love it because it, it dictates and shows what it looks like to be a Christian half the time. We're in our minds or in our thoughts and our emotions. We believe God to be good. But then all of a sudden, everything that we experience feels bad. And so just in a comparison, I want you to look at this picture while I read this comparison. The transfiguration happened on a mountain, but this happened in the valley. The transfiguration, there was all this glory, but here there was all this suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominates the scene, but here we see that Satan dominates the scene. In the transfiguration, there's this heavenly father who is absolutely pleased. But in this situation, we have an earthly father who is completely tormented. In the transfiguration, we have a perfect son glorified. And here we have a perverted son, stuck. Transfiguration, there is fallen men who are in holy wonder of God. But here we have a fallen son 
who is an absolute unholy horror. Why is this the story that Jesus first wants to teach his disciples? It's because life is meant to be lived in the valley. The next life is lived on the mountain. He's trying to prove to them and show them what the call of a disciple really looks like. Oswald Chambers, who a lot of people have read his books, uh, he says this, I feel like it perfectly encapsulates the sentiment of this moment. He says this, the height of the mountaintop is measured by the drab drudgery of the valley. But it is in the valley that we have to live for the glory of God. We see his glory on the mount, but we never live for his glory there. It is in the sphere of humiliation that we find our true worth to God. That is where our faithfulness is revealed. So I want you to notice something in this story. Who is absent from the nine disciples? Jesus, right? Remember, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. But Jesus is separated from his disciples. I want you to notice that he's teaching them what? A lesson on faith. In essence, what he's saying is faith is needed wherever I am not. Faith will be needed wherever I am not present. He's beginning the preparation of what it looks like for it to be better that he is gone. This is the continued redemptive story. That's what Luke is telling us. It's a continued redemptive story from Old Testament to New. And he writes Acts as a part of that. So what he's showing us is what it looks like to have faith. So let's go back, check it out deeply. Verse 37, again, the next day when when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. So a few things you need to pay attention to here. Teacher, what is that word? It means rabbi. What this probably means is that the father is Jewish. Why is that important? So when God gives Moses a priestly blessing in Numbers, it's something that Jewish people and priests would say every single day at the temple. And every single Jewish family would actually declare this over their children. And what is that blessing? Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Now pay attention to this. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So when the father says, look at my son, this is not just one of those moments, I feel like I've heard this in Sunday school, where all of a sudden, hey, look over here, my son is struggling. Hey, look over here. No, 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 no. What's happening right here, here is that the, the father is calling upon the Jewish blessing that he's been declaring over his son for generations, for years. This is a moment where what's happening is so much deeper than what you see on the surface. What's happening here is he's saying, you know that Lord in number six? It's you. You're that Lord. You're the one who has authority over the demons. You're the one who actually is divine. You are the Lord. Look at my son. Shine upon him. This is a moment that's so much deeper that we miss because we don't have this understanding of a Jewish worldview. But this is a Jewish father calling upon the blessing that he's been saying over his son since he's been born. But he continues. The story happens. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. So I want you to notice in that verse how there's zero medical language. And here's why that matters is because in the account of this story in Matthew and Mark, they talk about medical language. They use medical language. 
So they say things like the spirit who threw him, he was mute, he was deaf, and he was having what's known as an epileptic seizure. They use all of that description. But what's interesting to me is that Luke is a doctor. Luke is a physician. And Luke, who is a doctor, refuses to use medical language. Why? I believe it's because he is trying to point out the spiritual reality behind the physical one. He is trying to point us to what's really going on beneath the surface, what's really happening to this boy. And it's so much deeper than what you see physically. But Mark, I love Mark, Mark clarifies kind of the interaction between the two, so it helps us really understand it a little further. Because Luke is trying to affirm to us that Jesus is the object of the faith and the request. But the interaction happens in Mark chapter 9. So we're just going to look at it really quickly before we keep going. You don't have to turn there. Mark chapter 9, verse 23 says, after Mark asks him, or after Jesus, sorry, after the father asked Jesus to heal, says this, everything is possible for one who believes. Everything is possible for the one who believes. This is what Jesus says to the father after he says, look at my son. Everything is possible for the one who believes. But I love what the, the father says. He says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The best description I heard of this passage was I feel like where most of us are today. If you are struggling with doubt in your faith, if you are struggling with something that's going on, you don't really know how to reconcile it, this is the greatest news. This story could be the most liberating story that you know of. Because what he's saying is, I do believe. But mixed in is a lot of unbelief. It's a lot of doubt. And what I've learned in our life is sometimes we miss out on what God has for us because we get so caught in the fact that we don't believe. But it's not a black and white thing. So I want you to notice a few things. Number one, he asks for it. Notice how he does this. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is going to sound so elementary. So just look at me for a second. You cannot make yourself believe something that you don't actually believe. Crazy. I know. You can't make yourself believe something that you don't actually believe. And this is why you cannot create faith. Faith is something that is given to you upon asking. And a lot of us get stuck without asking for help in our unbelief, help in our questions. But also I want you to notice how he, he asks Jesus for help with his unbelief. He doesn't ask Jesus to prove himself. He says, help me understand Help me with my unbelief. I want to believe. I do believe. So continuing on, Jesus says, everything is possible for the one who believes. And everybody who's uh, reasonable and rational is like, yeah, right. Like, I know you in the room. You're like a right brain thinker. You're like, yeah, right. Like, not everything is possible. And this is, again, what we get caught in this black and white of belief. We think it's all or nothing, one or the other. And this is actually a huge barrier to us understanding our faith because this actual misunderstanding of faith has permeated the church for way too long. This idea that faith is opposed to reason. In other words, my pastor expressed faith, but my professor expressed reason. And this lie is actually seeping into our Christian churches, seeping into all of us as believers. We're believing in some way, shape, or form that there is reason and then there is faith. That somehow faith is irrational. But the reality is, is that faith builds upon reason. How does God choose to reveal himself to us? 
through a book that we have to think and reason with and see and understand. How can you know God if he's not intelligible to your mind? And so a lot of us, even, let me just be honest, even, even professors or even people who are non-believers, what they'll say is they're like, how can you believe in a God who does miracles? Yet when a miracle happens in front of them, they say, wow, what a coincidence. Faith cannot be opposed to reason, but faith builds upon reason. But here's what happens to us, is that this lie has seeped so deeply into it, and I just want to speak directly to some of you in this room right now, that even if you're a Christian, it's caused some of you to avoid the hard truths about God. Because if you believe that he's opposed to reason, you begin thinking, well, I just need faith. I don't need the reason part. I don't need to think deeply about that. I just need faith. But what happens is we end up becoming this version, a spiritual version of ignorance is bliss, instead of seeing the deeper reality, what God wants us to see, and pressing deeper into who he is. And it gives us this false illusion of control that we can control God. I, just, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go too deeply in that. I don't want to ask the hard question. Because what, what if I don't find out? What if I mess up my faith? No, the reality is, is that truth always rises. The truth will come to the surface. You can't avoid hard truths. But the other one is, I just want to speak again to somebody with doubt today. The other reality is this caused so many Christians, if faith is opposed to reason, it's caused so many Christians to doubt the assurance of their salvation. And here's why. This is on me and on the church leadership sometimes we do this. We love to put the story up here of the radical conversion, the guy who was in drugs and all these different things, and now he knows Jesus. And it's this crazy thing, right? And we see that. And you think to yourself, I didn't have that radical of a conversion. You think about what happened to you, and you're like, man, I kind of have a weak story. Like, my parents just kind of loved me my whole life, and I kind of, like, grew up, and I knew it all from the, since I could literally remember. And, and now what happens is you begin to slowly slip into this slope, which is weak faith, because you believed you had a weak conversion story. And so, since there was no radical moment, you don't know if your faith is real. But what happens is when we begin to believe that, we slowly miss out on something so much better. And so we have to make sure that faith is not less than reason, but it is more than reason. So let me just do a, a quick thought experiment. Anybody good for a thought experiment real quick? Anybody? All right, here, here's the thought experiment, if you like these. So let's say that you have a football team that you love, all right? And let's say this football team is down. There's only one play. They have to go 70 yards in order to score to win this game, right? You're watching your team. You love them. And you see your quarterback drop back, and he throws a pass. The pass is sailing through the air, and you see, wow, my receiver isn't even looking at the ball. And then you see, oh, man, there's three players on the other team who are jumping up to intercept this pass. And as you see it happening, they jump up, and they hit the ball, and it tips up. And the guy who's running, not even looking, all of a sudden the ball slowly falls perfectly into his hands. And then he begins running to the end zone, and you guys win, and everybody celebrates. What do you call that? Miracle at what? Oh, the miracle of Jordan Hare. I actually was going to show a video of it, but then I'm a Georgia fan, so I couldn't relive the pain. <laughs> Again, it was too much. Um, so many of us think that is faith. So many of us believe that we're constantly throwing Hail Marys to God, waiting for him to show up and show off. In actuality, let me just ask you a question. If you're an Auburn fan in this room, let me just ask you a question. If that pass had been batted down would that have changed your allegiance to Auburn? Like, let's say that pass gets batted down, you guys lose. Is all of a sudden now, are you a Georgia fan? No. <laughs> no. 
Why? It's because your faith is in a team, not an outcome. Your faith has an object. Your faith, you love the team. It's actually faith is rooted in affection. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in the fact that I don't care if they actually bat it down. I'm still an Auburn fan. And so many of us think that the impossibility of the outcome needs more faith. But actually, faith is rooted in the strength of your affection. And so if this is still not making sense or this is still challenging for you, I just want to give you three points that are directly of importance because they are the, literally the three points of what is faith. If you're like, finally, just tell me what faith is. This is something that we've been taught in seminary. This is something that t- tons of people taught in Latin. It's actually the, uh, the reformers taught this. And so I'm going to teach it. And I think for some of you in this room, it's finally going to clarify and put words behind what you believe. So point number one is this. Faith is built upon factual evidence. Faith is built upon factual evidence. And what I mean by that is that there is reason and there is logic involved. How else would you explain the fact that we are here spinning on a world thousands of miles an hour, somehow perfectly distanced away from a sun for life, yet there's millions upon millions upon millions of other stars, and there's light years away, and there's a galaxy all around us, and there's scientific things. What about the evidence of when you sit and your feet are in the sand, and you're at the beach, and you hear the rushing sound of the ocean, or you see a sunset, or since it's fall, you, you take a sip of that pumpkin spice latte. It's amazing. And you're like, wow, God is real. And <laughs> as someone with one of those wives, my bank account is after this, but um, how do you explain all the data that you have? The Latin is called the, the note, the data. So that's just the evidence. Let's just stop there, and I could, you could do a whole entire apologetics message. That's not the point of this. But number two is intellectual assent. Intellectual assent. This is, I agree that that happened. I agree that there is a, a God. I agree there's some bigger, higher power. But also, like, think about the 9-11 thing. For all of us in this room, unless you were there, at some point, you saw the, the videos, you saw the evidence. If you weren't born then, you've just heard the stories You've seen stuff, but at some point, you have to believe that it actually happened. At some point, you intellectually ascend to the fact that, yeah, the terrorist planes, they did fly into the the Twin Towers. In the same way, a lot of us intellectually ascend to the fact that, yes, there is a God. I do believe that there is a God. This is, agnostics believe this. There there is a God, but I can't know him personally. So, Sophia Cavaletti did a spiritual study of spirituality in kids. And she has all these crazy different, different stories in her research. But one of the stories was fascinating to me. And it was, they would look at different faith backgrounds and there was a story of an, a dad who was atheistic and he's sitting with his three-year-old girl. Three-year-old. No church, no Bible, nothing. And the little girl asks him, where did the world come from? And he looks back and he explains in like scientific and naturalistic terms how the world came to be. And he says, but there are people out there who believe that there is this higher power or a being and they call him God. As soon as he says that, the little girl stands up, starts running around the room, like jumping for joy. And she says, I knew what you told me wasn't true. It's him. It's really him thinking about spirituality, thinking about what does it mean to intellectually ascend, there's a third dynamic that is faith, and it's called personal trust. Personal trust. This is the moment 
where you, like that little girl, ascribe all the value and joy to the one God who's worthy of it. This is the moment where you go from thinking to yourself, you know what, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. This is the moment where you all of a sudden say, I want that God. This is the moment where you say, I know you're good. This is the moment where your heart, your mind, your will, your emotions, your soul, you say, all of me, you can have all of me, God. If you're real, I don't want to just believe that you're out there. I want to know you. And I believe there's a personal relationship to actually have with you. So I want to come to you. I want to fully trust in you. I want you to have all of my life. In other words, faith is not just belief in whether or not there's a God out there. Faith is a God you can know. You can put this on the screen. Faith is not whether or not you believe in God. Faith is whether or not you believe God. I know this is meticulous. Faith is not whether or not you think that there is a God up there. There's a second step to it. It's more than that. It's I believe you, God. I believe what you say. What does that mean? You believe that God loves you. You believe that God knows you. You believe that God created you. You believe that God cares for you. You believe that God is with you. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the central promise of the Bible is not that God will forgive us. The central promise of the Bible is not even that God will save us. The central promise of the Bible is not even God will love us. The central promise of the Bible is that I will be with you. It says that he walked with Adam and Eve. It said he walked with Enoch. He promised that to Sarah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Paul, to Mary. And guess what? Jesus, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he says it to you and he says it to me. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. This is what faith is. It's believing that God is with you. And he's taking his disciples from this moment on a mountaintop down into the darkest and deepest valley. And he's saying, I am with you. I am with you. And so I, I know I forgot to go back to the story, so let's finish the story. Um, verse, verse 40. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So I don't know about you, but I read that and I thought, wow, Jesus is harsh. Anybody else, you're like, whoa, that's some strong language. And here, what's happening is that word for unbelieving is the exact same one for faith. So he's saying, you faithless generation. But he ties unbelief to perversion. Which, by the way, perversion is not just like a sexual deviancy. Perversion is twisting anything. It's like a twisting of what God says. So what he is saying, in essence, is whenever human beings fail to believe God, they twist their lives. He's saying, how long? I have to stay with you guys. You keep twisting everything. You keep not believing me and what I say. And this is a moment for us where we have to ask ourselves the question, where is it twisting our lives? Where is sin affecting us? Where is sin perverting us? I mean, let's just think about this. What about the sanctity of life? What about the, the sanctity of marriage? Sexuality, all these things, all of a sudden, when you stop believing what God says, you start to twist your lives. That's what perversion says. In verse 42, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit. He healed the boy and he gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So in the other accounts of the story, 
they ask, how can we drive this demon out? Why couldn't we drive it out? In Matthew and Mark, in both those accounts, he tells the disciples, prayer. You need to pray. Which again, go back and watch last week's sermon. But for some reason, Luke chooses to end the story differently. And if you notice, how does he end it? He ends it by saying, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Why did he end that way? I believe he wanted to end the story in the exact same place that it started. What happens? The transfiguration, the glory of God. God is great. Great are you, Lord. So then this moment where there's a demon possession of this little boy, and what does everyone say? God is great. See, he's teaching us something. This is the first lesson that he teaches his disciples. But what's interesting, it's not a lesson for them. It's actually a lesson about him, about who Jesus is, about what he's come to do. Not only that, Jesus is like such a masterful teacher because he's telling them, I will be with you without saying it because God is with you if you pray to him. But what's interesting is that there's this moment happening in front of us where God becomes so great and we see ourselves in that light. And so you need to know this, that a, a true disciple doesn't just do great things to try to prove their faith to God. A true disciple sees the greatness of God and his faithfulness and says yes. You think about it this way. I talk to so many college students who are so fired up about what God's doing in their life and so excited about the future. And I hear them say this statement and I just kind of like irk myself a little bit. It kind of bothers me, but they say, I just want to do great things for God. And I'm like, you're just missing it. It's still about you if that's the case. So I've been trying to tell them, do things for a great God. Emphasize him. See him as great. See him as glorious. He's the one who is great, not you. And he's inviting the disciples into this story, this journey, because Jesus is such a great teacher. He's not only talking about himself, he's actually giving them the plan. This is the plan. Go back and look at it. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. What happens? Jesus heals the boy, hands him back to his father, right? This is not a story that you're just looking into a couple thousand years later about this boy who was healed. This is an invitation to all of us. This is the plan that God has for us. You bring people to Jesus. Jesus is the one that heals them. He's the one who takes them back to the right hand of the father. This is what it means to be a Christian. And he's inviting the disciples into that story. He's inviting them into live out the life that he died. He will die and rise for them to live. This is an incredible moment. But he's inviting us into it as well because Jesus sees all of the sin in your life and all of the sin in my life. He sees all the insecurities. He sees all the anxiety. He sees all the doubts that you have. And he still says, come on, I will heal you. I'll bring you back to my father. And so in, in this scenario, I think for so many of us, we immediately disqualify ourselves. I think about an eight-year-old boy named Jackson, who's now in college. At eight years old, he got the diagnosis, cancer, leukemia. At nine years old, this boy Jackson is sitting there in a hospital room and his dad is praying over him. And as his dad is praying over him, he looks at his father and he says, am I going to die? Imagine being, if you're a father in the room, how gut-wrenching that would be. 
And he begins to pray and he tells him about Jesus. And he prays over him and Jackson receives Christ. And he says, actually, I don't know if you're gonna die, but I know of a place where you'll live forever. And he tells him about Christ. And so this boy has cancer, he's fighting, he's fighting, he's fighting. There's moments where he's praying over him. There's moments where his father is stepping in. He's asking God to do the very thing that we just read. Please heal my son. Please heal my son. And Jackson tells this story because he's involved here at this church. Jackson tells this story of how he was at the hospital room. And if you have dealt with cancer, you know how horrific it is. You know how terrible it is. You know how painful it is. You know how it's not easy to go get a chemo treatment. So he has his port and he's going to have this surgery he needs to have. And he just prays this simple prayer. God, will you be with me? He said that as he was leaving, he's walking down the hallway. He's walking down the hallway to the surgery he's supposed to have. And for some reason, he was like, I didn't really have anybody around me. He says in his mind, he closed his eyes and he said, God, will you be with me? And he says, as he's walking, he feels a pressure on his hand as if somebody is holding his hand. And he looks to the left and he doesn't physically see it, but he closes his eyes and he can tell that Jesus is walking him to the surgery. And as I say that, some of you are like, that's not possible. That's not gonna happen. It's not true. I believe this is a miracle that God revealed to him. To what? To affirm what was already true, that his faith was already real. And he walked him because he loves him. And he walks you because he loves you. And he walked him to this surgery. And three and a half years of fighting and fighting and fighting. Finally, Jackson beats the cancer. And God heals him and restores him, answers the very prayer that his father prayed, restoring him back to his earthly father. But more importantly, he restored him back to himself. His heavenly father, Jackson, knew Jesus. And so I think I got a picture of him, even at college retreat. He's been an LDP here. He's been serving here. God healed him and his mission is still going. And so for so many of us in this room, it's easy to see a story like that and think that for some reason, faith is against reason. But in actuality, our faith is built upon a miracle that happened, that Jesus really did come, he really did die, and he did, really did rise from the dead, and now he's inviting all of us into it. What's amazing is we get to see the glory and the greatness of who God is because of what he's done for us. So faith is not because, oh, this is impossibility that could happen. No, faith is believing, God, I want you. I treasure you. I see you as everything in my life. I want to give it all to you. And that's the invitation for all of us every single time as disciples. And what's interesting, by the way, the disciples at the end of this story, they end up arguing about who's greatest, which is just hilarious. And as they argue about who's greatest, it's because they still think that Jesus, the conquering king, is going to give them a crown. But in actuality, he said, no. We're going to the cross. So we're gonna take communion right now. This is our moment to remember the greatness of God and what he did by sending Jesus. And so husbands, pray over your wives. This is a time for you to do business with God. Maybe you even ask him, help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome what I'm feeling right now. So I'm gonna pray really quick. Actually, you can go ahead and raise your hand if you don't have communion. If you don't have a communion set, you didn't get one on the way in, we have some volunteers who would love to bring you some. We don't want you to miss out on this moment. I'm giving them a few moments. I'm just gonna pray. Keep your hand up. It's okay, you can keep your eyes open for this prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. God, I thank you that you have made a way. 
Oh God, I just think about the very fact that I have breath in my lungs as I speak. And I'm so grateful for it. God, I don't deserve everything that I've been given in this life. And so God, I thank you. So Father, right now, I pray for somebody who's hurting. I pray for somebody who's going through something they don't want to talk about. God, I pray for somebody who's hiding the secret, who's hiding the sin, that they would bring it into the light. God, I thank you that your, your sacrifice on the cross was enough that we can step into a full relationship with you. So Father, I pray that you would heal people in front of us and bring them back to yourself. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen. Go ahead, take communion.